This is take two of an interview with Jack Welpot, February 17th, 1978. My name is Arthur Ullman. My name is Jack Welpot, but we're still eating cheese and coffee. And I put honey in my coffee. <laughs> That'll sound good. That'll blow the ears off the transcriber. <laughs> oh, she's pretty. Why should it be considered that it's a Moving right along. I want to talk about. Do you see any relation between the uh, Henry Holmes Smith and what we might call the Midwestern character? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think Henry was really burdened with all of the things that the Middle West engenders, uh, you know, the Puritan ethic. I mean, he wasn't a religious man, or, or he wasn't involved in religion that I ever saw, but I mean, the work ethic, the uh, seriousness about life. Uh, um, he was a Middle Westerner, uh, I perceived him, you know, with all of the kinds of things they laid on you, which, curiously enough, seemed to generated a lot of important artists, uh, that kind of ethic, once you get away from there or something, if you can spring yourself from it. Like Kurt Vonnegut came from Indianapolis, and uh, I met him not so long ago. That was revealing. We talked about this, you know, that uh, the Middle West seems to, while not at all uh, supportive of the arts in any way, seems to be a good crucible for people who want to go, who eventually go into the arts. Uh, I think maybe to be in the arts you have to have a kind of discipline and a willingness to work and this sort of thing that is that is uh, central to the Middle Western ethic. And it's not so evident in Westerners as it is in the Middle Westerners. And maybe not even so evident in Easterners. You ever go to Chicago and watch the people bustling around? I did. I used to go there a lot. I'm from Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that the, the work ethic is kind of the, the paramount issue in the Midwestern mentality? Well, there's a Puritanism, you know, running through everything. Uh, um, uh, I mean, the work ethic is there. There's a Puritanism is there. Uh, um, they tend to overdo on things like patriotism and uh, um, and fatherhood and motherhood and <laughs> any of the American uh, things, you know, that supposedly make Americans great and all that sort of thing. I mean, the, the worst, the most um, uh, intensely involved with that idea of uh, the American character or something is a Middle Westerner. You know, he really believes it. And he's remained there until recently, mm -hmm. but there's a change in the last year or two with him coming west. What do you know about that? About him coming west, you mean? Well, I think that uh, I get the impression that Henry, uh, uh, while being a Middle Westerner in every sense of the word, uh, was, uh, you know, had the insight to see the... Uh, the more gross aspects of that kind of character, you know, of, of uh, 
I think he looked at it with a jaundiced eye in some ways. I'm probably admiring some aspects of it, but also thinking the Middle Westerners were pretty self-righteous characters, you know. And uh, so uh, I think Henry, uh, in his travels, particularly in the West, was uh, seemed drawn to the to the character of people out away from the Middle West. I think he perceived the faults of the Middle West, really, but was probably never in a position or never wanted to, I suppose, do anything about it, partly, I suppose, because of family, and he was well settled in a good job, and, and uh, you know, he wasn't the kind of guy to make radical changes, like jumping from job to job or something. Um, wait a minute. Not Henry Smith, we're talking about Edward West. Okay, let's go back to Henry Smith. Oh, there's a certain melodrama in Henry, too. Um, what were we talking about? Uh, the Midwestern character, the Puritan ethic, and oh, yeah. his move west. Well, I think that, um, I don't know what Henry's feelings finally became about Bloomington and the Middle West or anything like that. I mean, he never talked to me about that, but I know that he got progressively sick of uh, teaching in that university full-time and uh, uh, and wanted to uh, taste some kind of better life or good life. And I know he came west on several occasions and was really looking around. He, he was drawn to the Bay Area, and I tried to convince him to live here. Uh, Henry is parsimonious, I would say. And uh, always impressed me the, uh, that fact, like he had a watch once, so I, I happened to see a watch on his wrist. Uh, this was in the middle 50s, I guess, something like that. And uh, I looked at the watch, and uh, it was a very interesting watch. And I said, gee, that's an interesting watch, Henry. And he'd had that dumb watch, you know, something like since 1928 or something like that, see, that same wristwatch. And he told me that. And on another occasion, you know, like uh, occasionally one will uh, go out and decide, well, maybe I'll buy a new electric razor. I mean, I've done that a couple times in my life. And I decided, I was talking to him one time back in, this was in Indiana, I said, you know, I think I'll buy a new electric razor, Henry. I don't like this other one too well. I think I'll buy a new one. And Henry said to me, can I have your old one? And I thought that was really far out. I mean, you know, <laughs> kind of parsimonious. <laughs> he wanted my old ones. And... Uh, so uh, when Henry came to California and saw the prices of houses uh, in the Bay Area, like for a while he was thinking about Marin County or Sonoma or someplace around the city or Oakland or whatever, but the prices were uh, uh, higher than they were in the Middle West. I think uh, the crazy thing of it is if he'd bought, this was just three, four years ago, you know, now they've doubled again. He would have doubled his money, see. And, uh, but uh, he couldn't see doing it. And I, and I, really thought in many ways he probably had the money to do it and as I tried to convince him uh, uh, living in the Bay Area would generate some income for him in various ways I'm sure you know but he uh, financially didn't see his way into it so it was really a surprise to me when he moved to Tahoe I thought that was kind of weird but uh, that's where he is and probably it was the price of the house or something and uh, I think he, he was just fascinated with life in the West uh, in the last few years of his life anywhere in the West. Probably. There's been, of course, a lot of gross characterization of the East Coast as being the intellect of the nation and the West being more the, uh, 
shall we say, the uh, perhaps the gonads of the nation, <laughs> certainly the uh, the lubricious aspect, mm-hmm. and uh, it's interesting that a man of the uh, the high-powered mental facility that we have been describing uh, would want to come to the West rather than say the East. I, I think uh, I don't know. You know, you'd have to ask him what he thinks of it. I, I have. I am in love with the West, and I think, in fact, for me, that it's where it's happening, really, that when you start looking at the various experiments in life and uh, uh, the explorations of uh, uh, urban uh, alternatives and, uh, and strange lifestyles that people get into and intellectual uh, thoughts that are generated and so on, it seems to me like uh, there's a lot more going on in the West than the East. Um, the East strikes me as being the marketplace, you know, really. and. Uh, a lot of uh, highly intellectual people gravitate in and around New York because that's where they can make a buck. But there's, um, when you really look at the West, it is, uh, to me, it appears to be leading the country really in terms of uh, action on a, on a social level and so on. And uh, I think Henry would be sensitive to that, that that's... Uh, well, uh, can we talk a bit about uh, his, his feelings and his, about applied art? And social utility of art. Um, when you say applied art, you mean like uh, commercial art, or, or? Well, I suppose that that would enter in, but the use of art somehow in the world, rather than in the classroom strictly, mm-hmm. or uh, in simply in studios and galleries. Um, well, Hen- I mean, you know, Henry can more eloquently talk about that, uh, and I'm not even sure I'd be right about what he perceives there, but, but I, I think I always thought that he felt that uh, culture uh, was absolutely essential to, uh, to uh, society and to uh, molding a rich and full kind of society. And uh, so he would see the, the arts, all of them, you know, as, uh, as a really central social fact that without culture uh, a society is uh, poverty-stricken and without uh, any, a sense of direction and doesn't uh, and can't function well. You know, so I think he saw uh, art, and it's this is my own perception. I you know he mm-hmm. you should find out what he thinks, but but I think he perceived art uh, even the most esoteric and uh, lofty and ivory tower kind of art as being absolutely uh, essential social fact. And I mean that uh, without it, the society would be crippled, really, you know. And so I, I, I always felt he perceived art as really very important. And, and he engendered in me, I think, a, a feeling that I have that namely uh, there are probably three central activities in, in the world uh, that are absolutely essential, and that's uh, religion. And I, when I say religion, I don't mean Christianity or anything like that, but uh, but spiritual life, uh, political life, and art, and that those things uh, shape the society more than any other thing, really, I think. And I have a feeling that Henry might share some kind of view like that. You know, Some of that question comes out of the notion of uh, the Bauhaus, uh, Maholinage, the, the ideals of design for industry. Uh, wondered if some of that had rubbed off on Henry and thereby on you. I think it, it had a, maybe initially, but um, I think that dream of Maholi Nagy's was uh, kind of shot down in some ways. Uh, uh, 
it was utopian to think that the best of art could be for industry. Uh, I think history has proven that industry is not interested in the best of art. It's in the second best or third best or something like that. And um, so I never heard in, uh, Henry pushing the idea that um, you know we, that our art should be functional in business and industry or or out there uh, uh, in that role or something like. That. He wouldn't discourage that. I mean, if some student said, "I want to be an industrial photographer," Henry would have, I'm sure, done everything he could to help him be a good industrial photographer. But but he never proselytized the idea that we should get out and put our art in the service of uh, business and industry or mankind on that level or something. I think his view was that it was larger than that and that, uh, it, it, that it was in the function of mankind. It was essential, but that you didn't have to, to uh, do it for industry or something like that. See, I think Moholy, that was a kind of optimistic view that, of possibilities of getting art together with industry. And I don't think it's been borne out. Uh, industry tends to uh, either use up art or destroy it. And, uh, and that's where we are today, unfortunately. Standing Henry up uh, in relationship to some of the other major influences in the medium during the same period of time, and uh, more into the present, we come across the name of Minor White, and, and I'm interested to know what Henry's relationship with Minor and mysticism and the East, and his appraisal of Minor, if you're aware of it, and how that worked. Well, Minor came to my attention, and, and I suppose Henry's, because Minor was here in San Francisco teaching at the Art Institute, which was then called something else, California School, School of Fine Arts. Yeah, Fine Arts. and. Uh, um, uh, you, you were absolutely, in the Middle West, you were absolutely starving for any kind of evidence of any kind of activity in photography, and there wasn't any. I mean, like, the only magazines available to you were Pop Photo and this sort of thing, and uh, the only, it seemed like nothing was going on any place in the world except uh, in Chicago and in Bloomington, Indiana, you know. And uh, uh, there were few little activities in New York, but all shoddy and, and, and not important in our view in any way. And then suddenly there emerges this little uh, quarterly called Aperture, uh, published by Minor here in San Francisco. And this became, for all of us, and I assume for Henry too, a kind of uh, beacon in the, the wilderness or something. I mean, if somebody was really writing intelligently about photography and putting some real photographs in a little journal, you know. And uh, whether Henry knew about Minor before that, I don't know, but that's the first recollection I have. And uh, Henry then, of course, uh, got very excited because uh, one of his problems, to, I mean, nowadays, God, you can lay, lay dozens and dozens of books on a student. He had uh, things like uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men and, uh, and a few little uh, uh, show catalogs on uh, Walker Evans and people like that, and Newhall's uh, very... Uh, narrow in many ways history of photography that came out then there wasn't anything you know like you could put all the major photo books uh, on a six inch shelf I think you know and uh, so Aperture was seemed important and of course Henry immediately started writing little pieces for it occasionally with Minor and I don't know what their exchanges were on a personal level but uh, I know that uh, uh, that Henry while probably having some reservations about Minor's aesthetic positions and so on, uh, 
thought that it was that it was terribly important that somebody was doing this and so on. See. And uh, this led ultimately to their getting together and to him bringing Minor to Indiana University for a workshop and so on. See. Can you tell me a little bit more about those workshops? I know there were several and uh, a lot of different people were brought in and the work of a lot of different people was brought in. Could you explain some of those? Yeah, I, uh, somewhere I've got a picture of, uh, I was looking at it, it's up at school right now. Uh, Neil White put it up in the hallways. And uh, it's a photograph of a workshop held, I think, in 1956. Uh, and I'm really struck by the people in that workshop. Like, uh, there was, I was in that workshop. Uh, Ralph Hattersley was in the workshop. Minor was there. Um, Yoichi Okamoto, who became Lyndon Johnson's photographer, was in the group. Um, uh, Eugene Meatyard was there. Van Deren Koch was part of it. Uh, a guy that we don't you may don't know too much, but a guy named Will Counts, who uh, almost won a Pulitzer Prize a, few, a number of years ago in photography, and uh, various other lesser lights. Uh, but but it, uh, when you look at that picture, you realize, gee, there's important folks in that damn workshop, you know. And uh, that particular workshop, as I remember, I remember two particularly, and uh, I don't remember what the character of that one was. I think it was about reading photographs. One that he gave was about reading photographs, in which uh, he invited Minor to uh, present his work for reading. And uh, nobody knew who Minor was, really, except that uh, he was doing Aperture. That was all anybody knew about him. See? And um, um, he invited at that reading photographs one, uh, People like Dorothy Lang and, I don't know, Siskin probably and Callahan. I don't remember who the names were, but he had a number of named photographers who sent work. And he did, like one thing he did that I remember, he asked those uh, people if they wouldn't write briefly uh, their perceptions of that of a given photograph. What was it about? What did it mean to them? Uh, what do they thought to be? What kind of information did they think it conveyed, etc., you know? Uh, and then he, that information was sealed in envelopes. And for uh, several days, it seems like, we spent time reading these photographs. Uh, Minor and others, and, and Henry, were instrumental in the idea of reading photographs. Of, uh, and it was particularly interesting to do that at that time because the involvement in photography then was in the form of flipping through Life magazine. I mean, we all become conscious that the way people looked at photographs was you looked at them for 30 seconds and then went on, see. And this was a, a condition that everyone was into. And uh, uh, the, they were pushing for the idea, well, maybe you should look longer at them. Maybe you should sit in, one in front of one for a, a day, an hour, a week, um, uh, and look at it and see what it says. See, instead of uh, running through a magazine backwards on a train or something like that, which is what people normally did. See, And uh, uh, so... Minor and Henry started getting people into the idea of uh, reading photographs. We'd spend long hours looking at one photograph, and sometimes people say nothing for a long time. And finally somebody would say, I think uh, that little corner over there, that probably has something to do with so-and-so or something. It was this sort of thing, see. And uh, God, it seemed like you'd pick a photograph apart brick by brick to see what the hell it meant, see. And uh, we were doing this in this workshop, and... Uh, the carrot at the end of the stick was to to uh, lay out all your thoughts about the photograph and then after a few days open the envelope from the photographer himself and see what he had to say about it see 
and uh, to verify your own perceptions or shoot them down or whatever, you know. So that was one kind of workshop that he had. That's the one that sticks in my mind the most. I, he had, I only took two with him and, and some others that I, I hung around, you know, I'd come and go. But there were only two that I actually signed up for. And, uh, but, but I always managed to meet the various people who were part of them and so on, see. Uh, and for me it was a great experience because in comes, uh, like from Lexington, Kentucky, comes uh, Gene Meatyard with his craziness. And uh, I remember the uh, first time I met Meatyard, we're in somebody's apartment. He comes walking in uh, with two Kotex boxes full of prints, you know, like the outer box. And I was struck by the fact it's Kotex, it says on it, see. And in each of those boxes was maybe a hundred prints on the on the worst mat board you could buy. I mean, and he used to brag. He would brag about it. See that mat board? I only paid a nickel a board for that, see. Isn't that terrific? And everybody would say, it's shitty. He'd say, no, that's great mat board, see. And then... Uh, uh, he would sit, he'd sit in a circle and he'd pass his photographs around and uh, he was very prolific. One after the other they'd come, you know. And uh, Meat Yard would sit there and say, uh, now this photograph is way up on the top of the tree. It's one of the topmost branches in the tree. And he'd pass that. And then he'd take another one and he'd say, this photograph is down on the right side of the tree. It's a limb over on the right there, you know. And uh, this, this photograph is one of the roots of the tree. And, and this was the, his analogy of what it always worked was, you know, putting it on a tree somewhere. And... Um, Minor White would stand around uh, quietly and look like a guru while people read his photographs. And uh, Siskin would get up and joke, show his work, and pop off wisecracks and act like a New York taxi driver, you know. And Callahan would get up and say uh, that he was very shy and he didn't like to talk, but he'd show his work. And uh, he'd do that number, you see. And um, so. Uh, this became a very rich time for everybody involved in that in that scene because suddenly there were uh, hero figures and people really doing something and they were coming there and they were talking to you about what they were doing and so on. See. And uh, there was uh, an increase in writing about photography and uh, an increase in things to look at of some value and the beginning of shows of some importance. Henry had a very important show called Photographer's Choice, which if you look at the catalog, it's very revealing. It brings... Uh, all of the folks that are considered major figures now were in that show. And at that particular time, most of them were unheard of and unknown, see. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it, we went from a situation in 43, 46, 47, when I first got involved with him, where he had no equipment and nothing was happening and nobody was interested in photography but a few idiots, uh, to a, a situation where uh, things were becoming more lively and more rich, and uh, uh, you were beginning to perceive that there were other folks who were serious about the whole thing around, you know. Did Henry run those workshops differently than, uh, than he ran his classes? Well, somewhat, because he had, he always had other, uh, uh, you know, egos there. The folks that came to those workshops, curiously enough, like that 56, 1956 workshop, most of the folks in that workshop were not your usual student, a 20-year-old student or something like that. They were uh, serious photographers who were looking for some kind of sustenance, like Okamoto coming from Washington, D.C. You know, he'd been a photographer for a long time. And Hattersley was a teacher in his own right and so on. And uh, so uh, it was really uh, more of a meeting of, uh, more similar to being a peer group thing 
And so Henry just kind of orchestrated it around the fact that, well, here we've got all these egos with all this heavy information, and he would more or less uh, just try to orchestrate it so something would happen, you know, rather than... I see. Uh, did, uh, did Henry stress in his teaching, did he stress uh, the history of photography? And if so, what historical work was important in his classroom? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't bring history into the studio setting, you know, very much, but, uh, unless you were interested in something. But he did teach a, he started teaching a course in history of photography. He decided it was important that there be a course in history of photography. And I took that course. I may have even taken it the first time he offered it. I don't know, but in any event, I took it, and, and in it, he, you know, uh, it's kind of funny when I look back on it, he said, he said things like, uh, well, I'm, it's, we'll see if we can get through a whole semester. I've got so little material to work with. Uh, there were, like I said, there were no books. Newhall's was the only, there was Newhall's book, and there was a book by Ader, a German, on the history of photography, and there was Taft's book on the history of photography. And Newhall was the only one that approaches photography in any sense as a fine art, you know. And um, so uh, Henry wasn't sure there was enough material even for a history of photography class. And that's kind of funny now because I teach a history of photography class and I can't even get through it in one semester, you know. So um, he uh, showed all kinds of work and uh, there was no special emphasis. Uh, you know, you might, might think because of his background and so on, he'd emphasize Bauhaus or experimental or something like that. But he didn't do that. I mean, he gave every uh, point of view its due. And in fact, it was in that class that I first had my real encounter uh, with work that um, ultimately had a tremendous impact on me. First of all, it was Walker Evans. Uh, he showed Evans' work in that class and in fact got some of Evans' negatives from uh, the Library of Congress for us to print. Like I printed several of uh, negatives that were very, are now very famous of Evans. At that time, you could just write away a letter and say, I'd like to borrow six of Walker Evans' negatives. And they did insure them, but they sent them. You know. And uh, um, that was original negatives, not yeah, copy negatives. Not copy negatives, yeah, the real original negatives. Eight by ten negatives. Uh, uh, and, and with certain funny things were learned, like he, I don't know how many, I think he got eight negatives or something like that. And out of those eight negatives, four or five were Victor intensified. We all thought, that's interesting, they're all intensified. Why are they intensified? Did he screw up on exposure or was there some other reason that they, that would happen, see? And um, we got to print these. I mean, he was very, he supervised and he stood over us and made sure we didn't hurt those negatives and all that sort of thing, see? Um, and then another encounter for me was uh, Edward Weston, about whom I knew almost not, nothing at all. And uh, I remember him showing Weston's landscapes and uh, afterwards I came into the class and said to him, Henry, I don't see what's so hot about those. I could do that. Uh, I mean, they're just kind of simple, straightforward landscapes. Why? What's so weird about that? And Henry said, uh, well, uh, you know, if you can do that, you ought to go do it. And I did. I mean, I, I went out and tried, and I got the shock of my life when I couldn't come back with anything, you know. But... Um, this, this was something he tended to do. He did that to Jerry Uelsman, too. Did you ever hear about how Jerry got into double printing? Um, in this exhibition, Photographer's Choice, uh, there was a photograph by Arthur Siegel from Chicago that was a sandwich negative, and what it was, it was a photograph of a freeway with an over-ramp. Mm -hmm. 
Have you seen it? Yeah. The nude. The nude on the overramp seat. Right. And Jerry saw that photograph and got mad, actually, and said to Henry, what's so good about that? That's crappy. And uh, he said, I can do that better. You know, I can do that a lot better than that. And so Henry just said to him, well, if you're such a hot shot, let's see you do it better, you know. So Henry went, or uh, uh, Jerry went off to the dark room to try to do it better. And that set off the whole business of him multiple printing, see. And um, uh, so Henry was, uh, and that's kind of interesting too, because Henry and Arthur Siegel never got along all that well. And one might expect uh, him to say of Jerry, yeah, it is shitty, isn't it? <laughs> I might be tempted to say something like that, see. But instead, he just picked up on it, on it and challenged uh, Jerry to do it, see. But Siegel didn't ignore Henry Smith. He, he was at that workshop in 1956 also, if I recall the photograph. Oh, yeah. In fact, they were very... Uh, no, Siegel wasn't at that workshop. Siegel was... Um, uh, Henry was invited on one or two occasions to participate in workshops at the University of Missouri, photojournalism workshops. Um, and I, in fact, I went to one of those workshops with Henry, and I was a student in it. Uh, they were, let's see, what was the name of the guy? There was a guy, a journalist at the University of Missouri who was organizing, every year he organized a workshop. He brought in some very interesting people. People, when I was there, Russell Lee was part of the uh, staff, and Henry Smith, and uh, some lady from Life magazine, and uh, Arthur Siegel, see. And all through the years, um, something happened, I think, when Henry was in the Bauhaus. Arthur Siegel was a student there when Henry was a teacher in the Bauhaus. And something happened to uh, make Henry have some rough feelings towards Arthur, you know, and, I th and Arthur had some rough feelings towards him. Although they did associate, you know, and they, and they operated in this workshop and so on, but I think Henry always had some kind of, uh, he didn't like Arthur's personality. And Arthur was a very abrasive, snotty kind of character sometimes. I mean, he was capable of, of uh, really gross uh, behavior sometimes towards people. See? I think Henry was put off and didn't like that. Maybe there was something else going on there. Um, but in any event, where were we? Where, uh, these, um, these workshops were an incredibly rich experience, and I think it was the beginning of the realization for all of us that there was something happening in photography. Well, one sees that the, the workshop seems to have been structured not only to bring these people together, but to perhaps bring them to his students. In other words, they were in his home ground at his school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, could he have done more, do you think? Uh, or did he do a great deal towards bringing his students into the professional photographic world? Did he introduce you to the art world uh, professionally, give you some lead-in to some of these other figures? Yeah, in fact, he would, uh, uh, once in a while, student groups, uh, he'd go up to Chicago with them. To, I, I didn't go on these trips. Uh, I was never much for traveling around at that particular time. I, I was into... I guess I'd been in the service and I'd knocked uh, halfway around the world. To Chicago and he would, uh, we had little exhibitions like over in Ohio University and we'd go over and look at the show, you know. And uh, he'd encourage you to do things like he encouraged me at one time. I was going east to see my brother who lived in New York and uh, Henry encouraged me to uh, make it into a photo journey. So I, I went to Pittsburgh and I met Roy Stryker 
and talked to him for a while, and I went to uh, uh, the uh, Eastman house where Miner was, and uh, talked to Miner for a bit, you know, and uh, so he was he was always encouraging us to make contact with uh, our heroes or or the main figures in the medium, you know, and uh, some of us did it, you know. You speak of Henry Smith as being kind of an embattled figure or a, a lone, a lone ranger out there mm -hmm. on the great Midwestern plain, embattled when when photography was fighting for recognition. Now that photography has, in a sense, begun to blossom, uh, how do you perceive that role of the, uh, the solitary samurai out there? Well, I I think. Uh, his intellectual ideas are, are increasingly more accepted. I mean, the evidence of this that we're doing this now, and uh, there are articles written, and they want to do anthologies of his writing and all that sort of thing. So his intellectual presence is accepted and acknowledged. Uh, he's, I think, he's still embattled in terms of his own work. Uh, there's still a tendency to shove that aside and say, well, he was a great mind in photography, a great writer, but there's not enough. Uh, I think effort on the part of the, the photo world to look at uh, the, the vast uh, work, or the work in a, across the spectrum and to try to figure out what it, its relevance is. See? And I, I perceive that it's very important, but uh, nobody seems to be talking about that. You know? He wrote, uh, whatever the risk of the teacher's tasks present, they offer no gamble equal to the artist's. And if the teacher holds the fate of a hundred or a thousand younger or older lives, the artist holds the fate of that most important single life, his own, in public view. Has he held his life in public view? As an artist? As an mean? artist, yes. Has uh, that work, uh, do you feel like he has shown his work enough? Uh, he's been around a long time and we've seen relatively little. He's... Uh, uh, I think he's he's attempted to and he's willing to, but there but nobody's picking up on it. Like he had a big show at uh, at uh, Indiana University, you know, a fifty year retrospective, which should have gone someplace else, and there should have been a major catalog on it for people to look at. Uh, but nobody uh, got into doing it. See, and and I've tried to uh, get shows to happen here in the Bay Area, and uh, every once in a while it looks like something's going to happen. You know. Uh, but I, th I think the problem for Henry is that uh, they just bypass him. I mean, nobody, no major museum is coming around to, to my knowledge and saying, let's do a big thing on this guy. And uh, no uh, writers of note uh, who could uh, verify or certify what he's done for choosing to deal with it, uh, they kind of dismiss it. Like uh, I brought this up with Peter Bennell once in, uh, in a get-together. And uh, Peter's attitude was, uh, well, Henry can't complain. He's in the major collections. I mean, you know, in other words, he's got a print here and a print there. Uh, but I was saying to Peter that, well, Peter, that's not enough. There should be a big, a major show with a catalog, and uh, somebody like you ought to try to ferret out what the relevance of the work is and this sort of thing, see. But uh, nobody uh, will pick up on that, see. And... Um, so I don't think it's Henry's fault. I, I think Henry uh, um, will would cooperate and will cooperate 
to the extent he can. But uh, nobody's giving him the real chance to do that, I don't think. I don't think. Do you feel it's because the work was too advanced or too obscure or what? I think uh, it's off on a bag in, in, a, in an area of uh, photography in this era has been defined in certain rather specific ways. Uh, you know, camera generated imagery principally, see. And uh, work that, has, that lies outside of that has had a tough time. This has been true of Man Ray and Maholinagi and Christian Chad and all those people. Although in the last five years, that's changing. Like suddenly now there's a, a people are looking at, uh, uh, at uh, Maholinagi's photogram and all this sort of thing, and they're beginning to think, well, maybe that's kind of interesting, you know. But, but I think for many years, that stuff was just shoved aside. And then even Maholinagi suffered the fate of being, well, he was a great teacher and a great innovative thinker, and uh, he did some kind of nice things, but there wasn't great interest. Um, a guy like Lee Rice, who, I, in a sense, Lee Rice is a grandson of Henry's, being a st having been a student of mine, you know. Uh, Lee, uh, even in his own work, has returned to some Bauhaus attitudes, which kind of interests me, because, you know, I see it, maybe it's come through me and, and wound up in, in a genetic fashion in Lee or something. That's what I wonder about, see. From Henry, and um, Lee then even went uh, so far as to write uh, about Maholi and uh, and do what I, th I think is probably the only real catalog of Maholi's work that we can look at, you know, of any significance. And uh, so there is an emerging interest, and I feel like somewhere along the line, there's somebody's just going to have to confront Henry's work because he's right, he's a part of that. He is a link between Maholi and some aspects of Man Ray and, and others of the Bauhaus with the modern times in photography, you know. And uh, it seems dumb to me that some art historian or critic can't perceive that that is well worth writing about. Uh, they get hung up in the idea of uh, liking or disliking the work, you know, uh, rather than dealing with its um, what its historical place is or its significance. And that's think where they make a big mistake. And they don't take the time to really try to understand what's in that work. Um, simple little things, like I've got a photograph that is dated, something, the date is something like, uh, let's, I don't know the exact dates, but let's say uh, 1948 to 1958. That's the date on it. In other words, he perceives that image as having taken 10 years to make that one image. And it's based on the fact that the three matrices that are that make up that image were trans have been transferred um, over and over again for ten years. See, now this this is a very interesting perception in photography uh, uh, for a medium that's supposed to be instantaneous. You know, I go out and make a negative and print it the next day and so on. But the idea that I would take a given image and uh, explore the potentials in that one group of relationships for 10 years. See, it's a little bit like the Sistine ceiling or something, see. But uh, nobody pays attention to that. And uh, some of the themes running through work. Yeah. Uh, well, that idea that of investigating a photographic idea for in such great depth for a great long time. And uh, uh, some of the like one of his, I have this image somewhere, there's a, uh, a multiple image called The Death of Punch. And uh, to me, it's a very, that's a very intellectual 
notion to convert into a photograph, uh, that idea of uh, the story of Punch and Judy and so on, see. Um, and there are other kinds of things. Uh, and there are his drawings, uh, for example, his cartoons and uh, a lot of different things. I, I think that a really perceptive critic or writer could find a great deal to deal with in that work, see. Yeah, you mentioned earlier his jaundiced eye on the Midwest, and perhaps the cartoons indicate a, a link to that. Yeah, I can't rem I, I saw a number of the cartoons, uh, actually it's been maybe seven or eight years ago, and I've kind of, they've kind of blurred into my memory, I don't remember the exact themes, but I recall there's a sense of irony in most everything he does, you know. Uh, the use of color was uh, very important and very early with him, and since color themes are beginning to uh, become uh, a very hot issue in photography today, uh, I would assume that there's some uh, input that Henry could give from his early work in color. No, well, this is another thing. Uh, I guess it bothers me in many ways. The uh, Sarkowski and people like that tout certain young photographers as the messiahs of color and all that sort of thing like nobody ever did anything in the past, uh, as though nothing existed until uh, Eggleston or something like that. And uh, I think, this, to me, this is just sloppy scholarship, uh, because not only was Henry doing some very interesting things, but some other folks, too, uh, some German lady, let's see, who had a show recently at The Focus, whose name I can't remember, what was her name? I met her in Europe. Um, Giselle Freund? Yeah, Giselle Freund, and... Uh, and of course, Outerbridge and, and, and others, you know, who were doing some very important and seminal kinds of things in color. And uh, so now we've got a big explosion in color, and it's like those folks never did anything, you know. Uh, I wish somebody would uh, take Sarkowski by the ears and, and point out to him about that stuff and so on, see. Um, so, and, and here Henry was operating very seriously with the idea of color photography, uh, I don't know how far back, but at least in the 40s, and maybe before. And uh, this is important, you know. Is there any kind of uh, summation, or similar to the piece you wrote in 1973, uh, I haven't even an read appreciation that, <laughs> uh, that you would like to issue at the end of this tape uh, to Henry Smith, something that, uh, that perhaps would... Uh, uh, elucidate the nature of the relationship you've had? Well, I mean, on a personal level, uh, Henry transformed my life, really. And, uh, I mean, when I think of myself, I was, uh, I, I was just a kind of uh, dumb Middle Western, uh, probably redneck kind of character who thought he knew uh, what was going on in the world. And, uh, with very little culture. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in a world where uh, there was no culture. Uh, the closest you could come to culture was Hoot Gibson movies or something like that, you know, for the most part. And uh, so I, I see that I was in some ways like a corn-fed character who bumped into this guy uh, who represented culture, and he transformed my life. He opened uh, just all kinds of doors to me that, that would never have been opened uh, if he hadn't been there, you know. So, in fact, it's probably one of the things that may directed me to teaching is uh, emulating him, I'm sure. Also, the realization that a, that a teacher could make that much difference in a human life, you know. Uh, not many human lives, but in some.
and the feeling that, you know, if you just reach one person on that level and transform their lives, uh, it, it's well worth the effort or something like that. See? And um, so, uh, I mean, he's very important to me for that reason. And in fact, he is the intellectual, he's been the intellectual underpinnings for my, everything I've ever done, really, I think. Um, he's always there as a, as a very significant presence in my life, you know. And I don't know what else you know, I can say, except that I, I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing, thinking I wouldn't be talking to you about photography or anything else. I'd probably be back in the Middle West selling insurance or something if it weren't for Henry Smith. See? I want to thank you for your time. This has been Jack Welpott. My name is Arthur Ullman.